Now, if you didn't know, we are kind of uh, into the back stretch of our 21 days of prayer. And hopefully you were able to kind of join the, the online text encouragements, or hopefully you have been following along in some of the social media emphasis that we have had every day in prayer. And I have heard that there have been people who said, you know, I really do want to start something. Um, and, and can we not try a small group? Can we not do this? And I say, absolutely. I know we have an in-person prayer meeting on Wednesdays. I know we have an online prayer meeting on Tuesdays. Um, but I don't have to be a part of every prayer meeting. Amazing enough, that is true. And, uh, and so there are some people who God has been speaking to their hearts and saying, you know, I would like to start something. Or, or you know, I'm, I'm in a group of seniors and, and we would just like to pray. We, we, we would like to meet regularly and pray. And by all means, help me to facilitate that. Uh, because prayer is the thing that will change. What we want to do uh, is we want to bring to truth the passage in James 5.16, which says, you know, pray for each other and confess your faults one to another and pray for each other so that you might be healed. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man or woman avails. It's powerful and effective is what it says. And uh, we want that to be true of us. And when we get into the whole talk, and this is, this is kind of the last of the series, which is called Why Pray? And the thing is, again, the conviction that I've had through the whole time is you've probably heard, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, dozens of sermons on prayer. But the hope that I have, and as I have been praying, and I prayed specifically this week, that God would do something to spark us from the inside out. Guilt has never, ever been a motivator for change. But the Spirit of God moving deeply in our hearts does. And so the context of the passages, the messages that I have been talking about, is the fact that we have to ask ourselves, why are we not praying? I want to try and expose the underbelly of prayerlessness. And when we take a look at everything, we come to a conclusion that one of the major reasons that, that Christians have difficulty praying is because of spiritual battle. It's not because we are bad. It's not because of, of uh, anything that we are doing or, or, or anything like that. It's the fact that we are in a battle. And so if you are here and you're saying, you know, God has been speaking to my heart to start prayer teams up. Well, welcome to the spiritual battle. Because Satan will do everything that he possibly can to keep you from praying. And um, the problem is, I think, that we underestimate prayer's value and power. And Satan works to work overtime to keep us asleep or distracted, uh, even with distraction of good things. The other thing that Satan will do is that he will work to make you miserable. And this is what I said last week. One of the greatest effects of spiritual battle is this, is that Satan tries to make you miserable, but not so miserable that you will do something about it. And that's true. And before we, we see a revival externally, we always talk about revival. And as long as I have been a young teenager sitting in a pew, I have heard that term uh, revival. But before we see a revival externally, we need to see a prayer revival internally. That if you take a look at history, 
Revival has happened not because of pews or programs or pulpits. It has happened because people have started to pray. And when people have started to pray, there has been a change, not from the outside in, but from the inside out. Revival has happened when people within the group begin to pray and God begins to do something. It hasn't happened that all of a sudden outsiders started to get saved. God begins to do a work in us before he begins to do a work in those outside. Does that make sense to you? Does that resonate with your heart this morning? Like When you got saved, when you accepted Jesus as your Savior, what happened was you realized that you were a sinner and that you could not help yourself uh, uh, get to, to heaven. It was totally an act of grace. And, and you realized that when Jesus died on the cross, that, that it provided an avenue for your sins to be forgiven. Does that make sense? But then at some point, you sat down and you went to God and you prayed. And you say, God, I can't do this on my own. I'm a sinner. I can't do anything about the sin. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray that you will come into my heart and be Lord and Savior. And your relationship with God started with prayer. As a matter of fact, the reason that you are probably here is because someone was praying for you. That you were drawn by the Holy Spirit as a result of some other person's prayers. And some people have argued that the reason we don't see people saved as rapidly as we did before is because we've just stopped praying for lost people. Because prayer is the key to revival. Amen? And for this reason, I have sought to pray a little bit deeper. I, 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 a lot of times you have so much time in preparation, so much time in prayer, and I wanted to put more time in the prayer than I did in the preparation. It's not because I want to be irresponsible. It's because what I have to say will not be received by my words, but by the Spirit of God somehow speaking in the deep recesses of your heart. And that is only a prayer thing. That is an internal thing, a deep spiritual voice that will change us from the inside out. And revival of prayer will not be because of a well-crafted or well-worded sermon. It will become God doing something from the inside out. And maybe he has, and I'm trusting that he has. That's kind of been the thought. Now, there is a, a, a great author, a great woman of God, um, died oh, a number of years ago, wrote a number of books. You probably know her. Her name is Corey Tenboon. Corey Tenboon uh, was a survivor for the Holocaust. Um, she traveled everywhere. She had some great quotes on prayer. Um, one of them is this, what wings are to a bird and what sails are to a ship, so was prayer to the soul. But she had one that really kind of hit me a little bit. And she basically uh, said this, Corey Ten Boone said this, and she says, in reference to your life, you have to ask yourself, is prayer your steering wheel or is it your spare tire? Is prayer, do you treat your prayer life as though it is the steering wheel of your life, or do you treat your prayer life as though it is the spare tire? That's an interesting thing, because we all know, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you believe intellectually that prayer is an important thing. But do we believe 
Prayer intellectually so much that we actually practically practice it. <laughs> you can say, hey, this is important. This is what I think is important. This is, this is, this is, family is the most important thing for me. Family, all these things, I, just, I think family is the most important thing. But if I take a look at your calendar and I take a look at your checkbook and it has to do with all the things that you are doing for yourself, the reality is this. You may say that family is everything to you, but if your checkbook or your bank account and your calendar is saying something else, the reality is this. Practically, you don't. And so I want to take us from a world of intellectual truth to a world where we practically do it, where it becomes part of our life. And so what I wanted to do is I wanted to take a look at Luke chapter 18. So if you have your Bible apps, turn with, with, with me to Luke chapter 18. And I'm going to re- be referring to the whole chapter. But there are three significant events, which I think are three ingredients, three ingredients which you need to have a sustained prayer life. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to start kind of in the middle, go backwards, and then kind of go forwards. And I hope I don't confuse things too much because I'm just a confusing guy to start out with, and I hope I don't do that uh, anymore. Luke chapter 18, if you have it, turn with me, um, to verse 9, okay? Luke 18, verse 9 says this, and, and Jesus is talking, and he, he remarks on a story. In Luke 18, verse 9, says this, Now, he also told this parable of someone who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. He said, two men went up into the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, the other was a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and began praying this regard to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, crooked, adulterers, even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes, all that I get. Uh, but the tax collector, standing from a distance away, was even unwilling to raise his eyes towards heaven and was beating his chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus goes on to say this. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other one. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, if you've read this story before, it's kind of give me a wave. We've kind of read that story before. It's kind of a popular one in, in, in Scripture. If you want prayer to be the steering wheel of your life instead of the spare tire of your life, the first and essential quality is the thing that we call humility. It is putting ourselves second, isn't it? You notice when they're praying, that both people are saying a prayer, but the first guy, he almost seems to be praying to himself. It was the second one who was saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And here's the thing that I found, that the worst place a person can be and the worst place that a church can be is when they abandon the humble position, when they no longer express and show humility. Um, The best that you will do is when you remember yourself as the person at the altar saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, rather than the person that says, I'm glad I'm not like the sinner. And Jesus gives a comparison of a public event which most often happens within our heart. And the greatest growth that has happened in my life is when I have taken a place 
of the publican or the tax collector at the altar. Those have been the times when God has worked the most in my life. And I'll say this, the times that God has worked the most in your life is when you have taken the place of the tax collector at the altar. Well, how do you know that? Well, because there is a scriptural principle which is in place when we humble ourselves. It is a core principle. It's called humility. And one of the, one of the most popular passages on revival is 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. It says, if my people who are called by my name, the first thing it says is this, humble themselves. If my people will preach good sermons, if my people will just build a really good building, if my people will, will um, you know, pay their tithes regularly, it doesn't say any of that. It says, if my people will humble themselves and will pray. You read James chapter 4, verse 6. It says, God resists the proud. He opposes the proud. He works against the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. A few pages later, if you're doing your devotions, you come upon 1 Peter. And 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5 says this. But God resists. He opposes. He works against the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And both of, both of those passages that James and Peter talk about refer back to a Proverbs in chapter 3, verses 34, which kind of says the same thing. But the funny thing about it is this, that there are more than 22 references in Scripture where it kind of says the same thing. Like if, if you are proud and if you have pride in your life, it, it causes a resistance towards God. It even says that God hates those people who are proud. So the question I ask you this morning is this, do you pass the humility test? Have you ever taken the humility test? Well, no, I haven't. Well, hey, let's do it right now. I don't know, get your pen out, whatever. Or maybe you can just mentally ask all these questions. So I'm going to ask you a number of questions. And if you answer yes to more than two, maybe you need to reevaluate the humility level in your life. Are you ready? Are you with me? Okay. Number one, you see yourself as an eight out of 10, a nine out of 10 as a Christian. Number two, your first instinct is to rely on yourself instead of God or others. Number three, do you have a problem forgiving others? Number four, is there someone in your life that you have honestly not forgiven? Number five, I hold a grudge or a position of envy towards another person. Number six, I'm discontent with what God has given me. Number seven, there is somebody I'm angry at because of their opposing views on COVID. Well, that one's kind of under the that one's kind of under the table, wasn't it? What am I at? Number eight. I don't do anything I don't like to do. Number nine, my favorite topic of conversation is often myself. Number ten, I secretly believe that I am better than most people. Number 11, I am frequently angry and impatient with people. And number 12 is this, of all the questions that I have asked on, on two occasions you've actually lied to yourself or you've done some mental gymnastics to answer in your favor. How do you fare? Now what you do now is that if you are married, do that same test with your spouse and see if they came up with the same answers that you do. Do we pass the humility test? It's a good question, isn't it? One of the biggest hindrances, I said, is, is spiritual battle. But I wonder sometimes if the devil really has to work that hard in us. 
Sometimes we just do a good job of ourselves. Because the scripture says this. If I'm going to be able to pray regularly, I need to get rid of the things of myself that are hindering. Because what the Bible actually says is it holds me back. It's a resistance in my life. Humility. The second one is um, we'll call tenacity. And so I'm going to go backwards. I'm going to go kind of to the first verse in, in, in Luke chapter 18. Hopefully you're kind of, I'm not confusing anybody too much. Luke chapter 18 says that he was willing to tell them a parable to show them all the times that they ought to pray and not become discouraged, saying, in a certain city there is a judge who did not, fear, did not fear God and did not respect any person. Now there was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him, saying, give me justice against my opponent. For a while he was unwilling, but later he said to himself, even though I do not fear God or respect any person, yet because this widow was bothering me, I will give her justice. Otherwise, by continually coming with me, uh, she will wear me out. And the Lord said, listen to what the unrighteous judge says. Now, will God not bring about justice for his elect who cry out to him day and night? And will he delay them, delay long for them? That's an interesting passage of scripture. I guess no secret that sometimes we have difficulty hanging on in prayer because of two things. We are either tired or we are torn. We are tired because we just have been praying for a long time and haven't seen anything. Or we are torn because we have prayed for something before and it didn't happen our way. And so now that we're up against this other thing, there's something in the back of our mind that says, well, it didn't work out the last time. I'm not too sure if it's going to work out this time. But it's kind of interesting if you look at this passage that he is going against the grain of piety. He's not using a normal person. He's using an ungodly, miserable, self-interested judge to prove his point. Why? Because perseverance cannot be anchored in our ability to juror or, or anything like that. It needs to be grounded in the character of God. You don't hang on because you have this, this mental ability. You've got this inert sense in you that can, can, can hold on for longer than people. What Jesus is actually trying to say here, bear with me here, he says this, your endurance should be based on the fact there's a, that there is a God that loves you and wants the very best for you. Have you ever noticed that about that passage of scripture? I'm going to endure because, because the Bible says I do and I'm going to do it and I'm going to white knuckle myself into praying through on this thing and there, and, and there are times where we do have to pray through. But the foundation of perseverance is the realization that there is a God that loves us and the reason that sometimes we don't hang on is because we doubt that love. You know, it's based on a God who loves us and desires the best for us. And that's why Paul says, you know, praying always with all prayer and perseverance for all the saints. Just continue to pray that God will move. Endurance, if it's going to work, has to have the proper perspective. So don't give up. Don't give up because you realize God cares for you. That he's working for your best interests. That he loves you. He wants the best for you. Don't give up praying for your kids. Don't give up praying for your kids because... You know that God loves your kids, that God wants the best for your kids, that God wants the best for your marriage. Don't give up when things aren't going so well in a relationship. Don't give up if the vision that you have is not going to happen as fast as you wanted that vision to happen. Realize that there's a God who loves you who put that vision in your heart. And you hold on, not because there's an inert stubbornness in you, 
you hang on because you realize that there's a God who loves you, cares for you. Does that make sense? Don't sit there with your deliverance and surrender to it. Endure realizing that there's a God who wants you to be delivered just as much as you want to be delivered or more. Who wants you to have freedom. If Satan can put a doubt of God's love for you, he wins. So you need humility. The other ingredient is you need this thing called tenacity, a perseverance. But the, the, the third one is a different one. I just thought if I can somehow explain this one, it's priority. Let's kind of go on in the passage of Scripture. It says in verse 15, people were also bringing babies to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. And when his disciples saw this, they rebuked him. And, and Jesus called the children to him and said, Little children, let the little children come to me and don't hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God is like a little child. Like a little child will never enter into it. He said, in, in, in essence, there's, there's a truth here that I think he's trying to show, not only here, but the rest of the passage of Scripture. That if you want prayer to be the steering wheel of your life and not the spare tire of your life, you need to exhibit humility. You need to have that tenacity. And you need to understand the priority. It's kind of interesting if you look at this. There are three times in Luke chapter 18 where there is a rebuking, like a correcting going on. Versus with, with these children. And hey, he didn't want these children here. Get rid of these children. Wait, don't you realize that Jesus is busy? No, no, no. Let them come to me. This is the important thing. This is what the kingdom of God's all about. If you read a few verses later, it's when the rich young ruler comes to him and says, Hey, what do I do to get an eternal life? And, and Jesus says, You know the commandments, all the things. He said, I've done these since, since I was a, a young person. This is, these are the things that I've done. He says, Well, yeah, okay, hold on a second here. You're forgetting one thing. Sell everything you got. Give it to the poor. You'll have riches in heaven. And he goes away angry. It's kind of a rebuke there. This is what you've always thought, but this is the reality. Then a few verses later, Jesus is walking along, performing his ministry, and some guy named Bartimaeus is blind, wants to be healed. He starts screaming out. And so what do they do? Will you shut up, Bartimaeus? You are so loud. Don't you realize that the Savior is busy? Don't you realize that the Messiah, don't you realize that the Master has all these other things? Will you just be quiet? And, and again, he says, hold on a second here. Stop. Let him come to me. It's, it, it's not about all these other things in ministry or stuff that we have to do or places that we have to go at the end of the day. I want to be able to see healing take place. I want to be able to minister to people. So you see, in, in this chapter of scripture, there are three times where there was, this is where I thought the right way was, and it ends up that I wasn't really correct in that. Sometimes I think that that happens today as well. We like to think that we have it all together, we have all the answers, and the way that we do it is right. But I'll tell you this, sometimes we can be guilty of switching the price tags putting a higher value on things that we think are important when really the priority is something else. And if my prayer life is reflected on things that are not important, then the prayer life that I do every day becomes tedious. It becomes cumbersome. It makes it difficult. I need to be motivated by the things that motivate Jesus. I need to take time where I stop and say, okay, God, 
What really is important to you? It has to do with simple trust. It has to do with loving Jesus. It has to do with not so much obeying the rules, but giving Jesus everything to minister to other people, to reach other people, to not be so concerned about whatever ministry or thing that I'm doing that I don't see the person who needs healing and go to minister to that individual. But that's, that's pretty intense stuff that he's talking about. And if you don't, your prayer life becomes unappealing. It becomes secondary to the primary things that God wants to do. Sometimes God is just looking for that childlike trust that he says in Luke chapter 18, verses 15 to 17. I think it was a guy whose name was um, Edwin Harvey says this, a day without prayer is a day without blessing. But a life without prayer is a life without power. Sometimes I think as Christians, we pretend that we have a second option. Okay, I'm not going to pray, but I can do this. There is no second option. Either, either we'll live a life of prayer and power, or we will miss a life of prayer and power. I took like a few minutes this week to look at the times that Jesus actually prayed. You know, why would Jesus have to pray if he is the Son of God? Well, he becomes subject to the first member of the Trinity, and he prays all the time. There are like four or five times that we see in Scripture where before major decisions, before choosing the disciples, he spent all night in prayer. The sending of the 70, he prayed before. Before walking on water, he prayed all night. He blesses the children. He blesses communion. Before and after miracles, he prays often. Before feeding the 5,000, he prays. Before raising Lazarus from the dead, he prays. At the Mount of Transfiguration, he prays. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays. He prays over Peter's soul. Three different occasions on the cross, he prays. After the resurrection, he prays. After the Gospels, it talks about Christ making intercession for us. He even teaches us to pray. He gives us parables about prayer. He talks about knocking and seeking and not giving up with you when you pray. If there's any motivation for us to pray, just take a look at the life of Jesus. That's kind of crazy, isn't it? And I'm hoping that this speaks to your heart. I am still a student after over 30 years of ministry. These are all my books on prayer. That doesn't include the ones that I've loaned out to people and they haven't given them back to me. Nor does it include all the ones that I've started to read online. I try and read at least one a year. And let me just tell you, some of these are, are groundbreaking and they have changed my life as I've thought about prayer. But I, in the midst of that, have still come to the conclusion that I am a student that I don't understand why or how God does what he does. And there are times where people come into my office looking for answers that I can't give them. One thing I do know is that when we pray, something happens. And that sometimes weird works. Sometimes crazy happens, and I can't explain it. Uh, two days ago was the 23rd anniversary of my mother-in-law's death. And I loved my mother-in-law, but you have to understand um, Italian culture. That although I love my mother, she scared me to death. I'll just tell you this. When, when we had her funeral, I had the opportunity to speak for a little while at her funeral. And I said, you know what? I want to say what my mother-in-law wants me to say or what God wants me to say. Because I know that there were times in my life where I wasn't too sure who I, I was scared of more. And... That's kind of the way mother-in-laws can be sometimes. 
But she grew up as a Catholic and got this form of cancer that was so rare that, that they weren't too sure exactly what it was. And, and she ended up going to Catherine Kuhlman ministry, and she was miraculously healed of this particular type of cancer. And her life turned around, and she started going uh, to an evangelical church. And she was on fire. And this, this person, she, was, she had crazy faith, and she loved Jesus, but she was so extreme that she would sunburn people with her faith. She would be crazy. And, and at times where I remember just kind of, oh, can you just kind of calm down, Mom, a little bit? And, and, and at the same time, there are people that she prayed for and cared for a, a lot. One was my brother-in-law, Albert. And Albert was crazy for different reasons. Albert would be known as your typical wild and crazy guy. You know, 25 years afterwards, people still talk about some of the parties that he threw while his parents were away and, and some of the crazy things that he did. And he did not love Jesus at all, didn't want anything to do with Jesus. And you put that personality in with the personality of a person that is so anxious for God that they, they go over the edge. And I remember times where there were arguments and and. and and you just kind of had to know the two personalities to appreciate the situation. And, and I re remember one particular time where my mother-in-law took a Bible, which, you know, as I remember it, it's probably about this big and this high at this time. She takes that Bible and she throws it on the ground and she stands on the ground on, on that Bible and says, Albert, I'm standing on the Word of God. And I'm not giving up on you. You're going to go and you're going to receive Jesus. You're going to love Jesus with all your heart. And I'm refusing to let go of you. And Albert said, Mom, you are crazy. Why would I ever, ever accept Jesus after seeing this load of craziness in you? You are a lunatic. And, and as I look at it and as my wife had discussed it, we agree with Albert. It's going to be impossible for him to come to know Jesus. She kept praying. And then 23 years ago, another form of cancer took. She continued to pray for her son. And she passed away. And Albert continued to be the hard, crazy individual that he was. Until one day a report came in that he had cancer. And it was in a time that was irreplaceable. Or sorry, ir uh, you couldn't operate on it. And he got worse, and he got worse. And three days before he dies, his wife's pastor comes in to the hospital, talks about him, and Albert accepts Jesus as his Savior. This is like eight years after um, his mother passes away. And I remember... I remember being in the hospital room where I saw him graduate from one world to another. And when that happened, I thought about that moment. I thought about that standing on the Bible crazy moment. And I realized that what Albert thought, what I thought, and what, I, and what my wife thought was probably totally different than what God thought. When we saw this crazy woman standing on a Bible, but God saw a mother who refused 
to see her son in a lost eternity. Eternity. And that has haunted me. Yeah, I've read all the books. Not all of them. I'm sure I'll be reading more. You'll never figure God out. Sometimes weird works. I don't know. All I know is that God has called me to pray and not give up. He's called you to pray and not give up. So God, I just pray that you will do something deep in our hearts. For those people who have been sitting over these last three weeks, and God, you've been knocking on their door to start something in prayer. Lord, I just pray that maybe that story or, or whatever you said today will take us over that edge so that it won't just be, okay, well, that's a good sermon. Let me go on to next week's sermon. But Lord, we will walk this week and, and listen to the voice of the Spirit that is telling us to pray every day. That God, you will move in a powerful way. That you'll minister deeply to our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for taking the time to listen. Let's continue the conversation online. Visit us at BethelBrandon.ca or follow us on Facebook.